Welcome to Vallejo's Community Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast on Sunday, October 13, 2019. Reverend Dr. Teresa Chavez Salceda is preaching. Her message this Sunday is getting from thank you to yes. The New Testament lessons are Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be here. It always is, and especially on a, such a lovely Sunday morning, and knowing that Wendy is, is having a wonderful weekend. Oh, it's, it's a privilege. Uh, I have to confess, when Margaret called me, it was far enough in advance that I was like, oh yeah, things will be back to normal by then. <laughs> so if you looked at my bio, you know I have a new employer, but I'm still doing the same work. And that's kind of, I think, emblematic. I tell my students that, that what's happening in the seminary and with the D- Doctor of Ministry program is my dissertation project that is kind of an ongoing and I'll never get the thing written. <laughs> but, but I can relate. All of, you know, the Doctor of Ministry program is folks who are in ministry who do this advanced degree to develop a particular skill or interest, or in many cases, people are coming saying, when I was in seminary 10, 15, 20 years ago, nothing I did prepared me for where the church is right now. So we're all kind of working in this world of trying to figure out who we are and where we're going. So our second reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy Chapter 2, 3 to 15. Or 8 to 15, excuse me. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Our scripture readings this morning should be familiar to many of you. If anyone kept data on the top ten Sunday school stories, my guess is the story of Jesus and the ten lepers would be in that list. It provides a good object lesson on practicing gratitude and, by the way, good manners for young children. And while most of us are less likely to be able to quote the passages from the passage from Second Timothy, the words at the center of that text this morning may have sounded very familiar to you. The saying is sure, if we have died with Christ, we will also live with Christ, is an affirmation of faith often used as an assurance of pardon following the prayer of confession. If 
The story of the ten lepers is about gratitude and the exuberant joy of newfound faith. The passage in 2 Timothy might be considered a cautionary tale. Life in Christ is not always easy. The author of 2 Timothy talks about enduring hardship and persecution in his commitment to spread the gospel and to support the faithful. Both passages can, and typically are, heard as speaking to us as individuals, speaking into our individual lives and faith experience. But I think to hear the deeper meaning in both passages, we should see both texts as addressing the followers of Jesus as a community. Second Timothy is written to the church, most likely after Paul has died, so into that second generation of, of an expanding uh, movement. And the story of the ten lepers in Luke is in the midst of a longer narrative that collects the teachings of Jesus shared with his followers as he journeys to, to Jerusalem, much the same way that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel does. And just before this story, at the beginning of chapter 17, there is a turn in this metaphorical journey that places Jesus on the border between Galilee and Samaria. Now, scholars note if you follow the narrative, the travel narrative, the places where it references locations, it's not a path that makes any sense. So the, the location has to do with the story, not an actual journey. So the story makes a pivot at this point, and the audience has also shifted. So from in the first part of the travel narrative, Jesus is speaking to crowds of followers, and it's this wider, larger audience. But at this point in chapter 17, it's located on this border between Galilee and Samaria, he's speaking to the disciples, to his closest and most intimate followers and confidants. And he is anticipating his own departure from them. So he's talking to them about the kingdom, the reign of God. To hear the text, as a first-generation audience might have, we need to stop and picture this scene that's constructed for us. This border between Galilee and Samaria, the border between the people of Israel and the people of Samaria, the border, be in, the border between, in the minds of the disciples, the true worshipers of God and the apostates, the religious heretics, who they see in the Samarians. As far as I know, there's no wall, there's no checkpoints with armed guards, but the wall of hostility, antipathy, and hate is strongly in place. In the midst of this border zone, Jesus encounters ten lepers. Ten people who are social outcasts on both sides of that border. Their illness not only isolates them through the fear of contagion, but through the judgment the society has placed on them. Fred Craddock, a well-known Methodist preacher and author of the Interpretation Commentary on Luke, writes that to understand this story of the grateful leper, we need to see it in two parts. 
Part one is a story of healing, and part two is a story of salvation. Part one. Jesus encounters a group of lepers as he enters a village. Keeping their distance, as society requires, they call out to him, pleading for mercy. Jesus hears them and responds with compassion, telling them simply, go and present yourselves to the priest. All ten turn and go, as Jesus has instructed them, and it is then that as they are on their way to the priest, as they act on Jesus' instructions with full obedience, that they are healed. All ten. Nine continue on to the priest, as Jesus has instructed them. It's the priest's task to examine them and pronounce them clean, enabling them to re-enter life in community, to return to their homes, to their family, to their work, to life where they are welcomed. Mercy and compassion, obedience and healing. Part two. Craddock says this part is about salvation and the one who turns back. At the center of part two is this Samaritan, a foreigner, the one on the wrong side of the border, the Samaritan who might have some fear that the priest will not welcome him in the same way as the others, not because he's been healed or not because he still has leprosy, but because of who he is. This one, the foreigner, who recognizes in an instant the enormity of the gift that Jesus has given to to all of them, turns back and full of emotion, praising God with a loud voice so that the whole village can hear, he prostrates himself on the ground before Jesus and gives thanks to God. To him, Jesus says, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The phrase that's translated here as made you well is often translated, particularly in Luke's gospel, as to be saved. Ten lepers are healed, but one receives salvation. It's a common pattern in Luke for the Samaritan the outsider, the woman, the tax collector, the poor, to be the example of right behavior and the model of what faith looks like. But Craddock points out something more might be going on here. In this story, as he sees it foreshadowing the narrative in Acts, uh, and we scholars believe Luke and Acts are, were authored by the same person, So looking ahead to the story in Acts, where the gospel will take root and grow, not through the embrace of the Jewish community, which Jesus and the disciples are a part of, but from this wider expansion of the nations that come. Remember Pentecost. So the church will grow way beyond the community and the imagination of the 12 who are gathered with Jesus. And Jesus, but Jesus is looking ahead. Jesus is trying to prepare them, and he's trying to say something about who, who will they be ministering to as they move into their own ministry. Mercy and compassion, 
obedience and healing, and gratitude and salvation. All in these few short verses. Now, Craddock is quick to say that this story, particularly when we break it out this way, is not about pointing fingers or casting judgment. He doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, why, why the others don't turn back and say thank you, were they not grateful? That's kind of not the point if Jesus is, is looking to say something to the disciples um, and, and, giving, and teaching them something. Uh, that's larger, different than that. And he suggests, this is Craddock, that like the disciples, we should probably be recognizing our affinity with the nine lepers who are faith, being faithful, obedient uh, followers of the, of the law and the, the practices and traditions of their faith. And ask ourselves what it is that we need to learn from the outsiders, the outcasts, and the strangers in our midst, whether it's in our congregations or in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our families, um, in this larger world that we're a part of. Giving thanks to God is a fundamental element of the Christian faith. It's hard to imagine any gathering of Christians in worship or fellowship in which thanks is not given in some way. And there's a lot of science today that supports the idea that the capacity to be grateful is a key to both emotional and physical well-being. But if we reduce the message of this story to a moral injunction to be grateful, we miss the point. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, to this close, intimate circle of believers who are his community. And he's saying something about who is welcome in God's community. The Samaritan is healed of his leprosy with the other nine. But he's also made well because of his faith. He's brought in, he's recognized, he's loved and embraced because of his faith. And he demonstrates this gratitude, not just by prostrating himself on the ground, but by shouting it in a loud voice. Now we can stop here, there's, but there's another dimension and another layer I'd like to explore with you. Because if, as Craddock suggests, the story is part of this lar- as part of this larger narrative, preparing the disciples to lead the church, that will grow after his Jesus after Jesus is gone, then perhaps this is a story for us today in the institutional church uh, to think about what church is. What does a congregation formed and guided and directed by gratitude look like? What would it look like to explore, to exercise our gratitude to God, not just as individuals within this community, but as a community, collectively? Earlier this summer, I came across, across a quote in my Facebook feed from an interview that was done back in 2015 with a man named Gus Speth. I don't expect you to know who he is. I didn't. 
But Gus Beth is a longtime researcher, author, and activist on environmental issues and climate change over the last several decades. He's published a number of books, served as an advisor on environmental issues for two pres presidents, both Clinton and Carter, and is currently serving as senior fellow and co-chair of something called the Next System Project at the Dem Democracy Collaborative, a think tank, in other words. So someone who's an expert in this whole area of uh, environment and climate change. This 2015 interview followed the publication of a book called Angels by the River, in which he talks about the need for deep systemic change, not just to address the environmental issues that concern us, but looking at their intersections with racial injustice and larger climate change. Economic injustice as well. And political systems. So big high-level thinking and research. What the quote that was probably still circling around Facebook and that really captured my attention had me thinking about it uh, for a while now. He says, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are not biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And he goes on to say that to deal with those we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And scientists don't know how to do that. Sociologists, maybe. But not the hard scientists doing climate change stuff. So scientists may not do spiritual and cultural transformation, but that is exactly what the church is about. Or should be. I think that if we were to ask people outside the church what they would want the church to be, whether it's on a global level or in their own neighborhood, it would sound a lot like spiritual and cultural transformation to end selfishness, greed, and apathy. There are roughly 100 students in the Doctor of Ministry program at any given time, and in one way or another, all of those pastors and chaplains and priests and rabbis, they're all struggling with the question of what does it mean to be church, to be a community of faith, and to do ministry in the world today. Part of why I find this quote from Gus Beth so compelling is that it pushes us to think more deeply, more creatively about who we are and what our purpose in the world is. What are we about as communities of faith? To go beyond measuring our success by numbers, how many members, can we balance our budget, and look at the ways in which we engage and build relationships as a community of faith with the larger community around us? How do we embody the spiritual and cultural transformation in our lives that faith works in us and act it out in the world around us? Not as individuals, because I think we all do. 
In one way or another, we are all being faithful followers of Jesus in our lives. But how do we do it collectively? How do we engage as a partner in addressing all of the problems in our community? Parker Palmer is known in pastor and seminary circles, some in sometimes educational circles, for his books on vocation and living life authentically. Titles like Let Your Life Speak, Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Towards an Undivided Life, Encouraged to Teach, Exploring the Inner Landscape of the Teacher's Life, all working with themes of healing, wholeness, authenticity and personal integrity, and the role of spirituality in human life. In a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy, The Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit, he applies these themes to what it means to be in community. He's using the political language of democracy, but he's talking about a community that works together, nurtures all its members, creates health and wholeness. What does it take to create a, a community that nurtures the human spirit? The elements of what he lays out echo the themes laid out in the Gospel of Luke. In this book, Parker lays out, Palmer lays out five habits of the heart for a democracy, for a community. And he's really thinking about the ways, he's not so much talking about national politics, although what he says is what happens in the local level shapes and forms the culture of what happens at the larger national level. So he's honing in on really community at the local level. How does a community work? So I want to share those with you and invite you to think about how they might be reflected in the life of Community Presbyterian Church in Vallejo, within the congregation, within this congregation, but also within your relationships in the community, your relationships within the presbytery, the different ways that you connect uh, with the larger, larger world. So here are the five habits. First, an understanding that we're all in this together. As a human species, we are profoundly interconnected and interdependent. Gus Beth, you can't talk about the environment and climate change without looking at economics, at structural racism, at political systems. It's all interconnected. Interconnected and interdependent with each other as human beings and with our planet. This makes us more dependent on and accountable to one another, including the stranger and the alien. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Closely related to this habit is the second one, an appreciation of the value of otherness. The good news, Palmer writes, is that us and them does not have to mean us versus them. Hospitality, another strong traditional Christian value, hospitality, rightly understood, he says, is premised on the notion that the stranger has much to teach 
us. The wel- and welcoming the stranger in our midst helps us think more expansively. Uh, so he's focusing in on problem solving. Uh, but gaining a different perspective. Uh, think of the parable of the six blind men and the elephant. Okay, We're all blind by our own location and focus and experience, but we learn, we gain, we expand our vision when we can listen to others, when we can hear the experience and the perspective of others. In our story, was the Samaritan able to see more clearly who Jesus was because he was not a Jew, because he was not immersed in the same worldview. The third habit is an ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. Just as we all experience contradictions in our own lives, Embracing deep hostility, hospitality, excuse me, hospitality means holding in tension the many differences that people bring into any community, into any relationship. Differences rooted in the variety of our life experience, cultural norms, personalities, all kinds of things. Palmer writes, we are flawed and finite beings whose understanding is always partial and in need of correction. The genius of the human heart lies in its capacity to use the tensions that come with our limitations to generate insight, energy, and new life. Jesus sets the pattern in the Gospel of Luke for a church in the book of Acts that will embrace Christians from a wide diversity of religious and cultural backgrounds, but not without tension, and disagreement, evidenced by all the books from Romans on in the New Testament. The fourth habit is a sense of personal voice and agency. Healthy community does not demand conformity, does not silence the participants, but creates space for its members to speak up and to speak out, to share their ideas, to share from their own wisdom and experience, and to voice their needs and concerns so that community can respond in constructive ways. All the while listening to each other, correcting and checking, balancing our own understandings of truth, in light of the voice of others. In the Presbyterian Church, we've long been leaders in the ecumenical movement and in the interfaith movement, not to convert others, not to become something different, but to have a deeper, richer understanding of who God is in our own experience and within our own tradition. That that requires valuing and giving careful attention to the voice of the other. Our uniqueness and our difference as individuals, as communities, is the gift we bring, not the obstacle to building community. This doesn't happen unless people feel their voice makes a difference, which leads to the fifth habit. The fifth habit is a capacity to create community. And essentially what he's talking about here is a capacity to build relationships, to expand relationships, to welcome someone new into a cluster of friends, 
and, in, and embrace them as another friend. In our large, fast-paced, complex society, he writes, there are many ways to plant and cultivate the seeds of community in our personal and local lives. And, I, and that's why I think as, as, as a, as a uh, strategy of change, he's saying it starts at the ground level. It starts at the grassroots. It starts in small communities. Jesus offered the ten lepers a profound gift of healing. Healing that restored health to their bodies and restored them to their community. And without a doubt, God was already at work in the life of the Samaritan, so that unlike the rest, he offered a grateful response to the unexpected gift of life restored to him that he received at the hands of Jesus. In so doing, he gives us a model of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I wonder how God might already be at work in the life of someone that we would least expect, who we might just encounter unexpectedly, who who would be a Samaritan in our world, an outsider, in your community, in your neighborhood, in this congregation. How might you engage them to hear what God is doing today? And are we ready to say yes. You have been listening to Community Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Community Presbyterian Church and its ministries, come visit us at 2800 Georgia Street in Vallejo, California, or visit our website, cpcvallejo.org. You can also email us at cpcvallejo at spcglobal.net. Have a blessed day.